In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, we're having more incredible stock market volatility, and I've spoken about the pickup in volatility as another sign that things are different, that we've had a change because increased volatility usually happens at inflection points, especially when we've had a record period of no volatility or minimal volatility. All of a sudden, we're having incredible swings in the stock market. Case in point, Monday and Tuesday. You know, when I did my podcast on Friday, I thought, hey, maybe we could have a Black Monday, right? We've had a big down day on Friday. We had a big down day on Thursday. We Dow was down like 1,100 points in two days. You know, could we have another big down day? And of course, we actually ended up having a massive up day. In fact, I think the Dow was up at one point better than 700 points on Friday. It closed up 600 and change. I mean, close to 700, not quite. The NASDAQ was up like 220 points. So even a bigger percentage move. So we had this huge gain. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the stock market has some of its biggest gains, daily gains. They occur in bear markets, not in bull markets. You have some spectacular rallies in bear markets. That is how bad markets operate, right? They're they're trying to follow the slope of hope. It's like trying to boil a frog Slowly, right? You don't want to turn up the heat. He jumps out of the pot. So it's a gradual increase. The idea is when you have these big 
uh, spikes in the market, that creates some hope and some optimism. And now people are, oh, great, no reason to sell. You see, the decline is over. People are afraid to miss out on the next big up day. So it, it keeps people in the market. It's like keeping the frog in the water. They don't realize that they're getting boiled, right? Because you have these big up days that made people think that they're still in a bull market, even though they're in a bear market. Well, anyway, yesterday we had this huge rally. Today, we started off with another rally. The Dow was up over 200 points early on. NASDAQ was up, I don't know, 40 or 50 points, something like that, maybe more. And then by midday, the market rolled over. At one point, the Dow was down better than 400 points. The NASDAQ at its lows was actually down more than the gain yesterday. Now, there was a small rally on the close, so the NASDAQ was only down 211, so about 10 points less than than yesterday's gain. Uh, We managed to close back above 7,000. We were below 7,000 on the low. The low was 69.63. That shows you how low the NASDAQ was actually down uh, before it had that slight recovery on the close. The Dow was down 344 points. So a bit off the lows there as well. Now, between the two days, the Dow managed to hold on to more of its gains than the NASDAQ. But the NASDAQ is looking really sick if you look at a lot of these stocks. And of course, you know, anybody who bought into the rally yesterday is down today if they if they got excited because we gapped up. I mean, the Dow was up about 400 points, four or 500 points in the first half hour of trading, right? It added on to the gains later in the day. But we gapped up and a lot of stocks gapped way up. So if you bought a stock early yesterday morning because you got excited about the big rise and you still own that stock today, you're down. Right. Even though the market might have been up more yesterday than it was down today. If you bought yesterday, you didn't get to buy before that rise. You bought halfway through. So if you bought Monday's open and you're still holding on Tuesday's close, you're down. And this, again, is typical bear market action. We opened high, and then we reversed, and we closed close to the lows of the day, right? This is what happens in a bear market. You get spectacular rallies that sucker people into thinking everything is okay, followed up by big declines. And the market looks horrible. The technicals look horrible. But look at some of these individual stocks. Look at these FANG stocks. If you don't know what FANG is, it's four of the NASDAQ high flyers. And the, the F stands for Facebook. And Facebook was down 5% today. Right? It was up this morning, closed down 5%. A is for Amazon. Amazon was down almost 4% on the day, 3.84%. That's a big move. N is for Netflix. Netflix was down just over 6% on the day. Huge drop in Netflix. And the G is Google which technically Google is now Alphabet. So it's not really Fang, it's Fana, but Fang sounds better, right? So, but Google was down 4.4%. These are some big moves in these stocks that everybody owns. And this could be the beginning of something bigger. And then look at some of the other uh, favorite speculative uh, names. Tesla, Tesla down 8.5% today. 8.5% in one day for Tesla. Look at NVIDIA. Uh, That is one of the uh, institutional favorites, down over 8% on the day, on the day. Look at Twitter. I mean, Twitter isn't one of the favorite stocks. I mean, Twitter's had some problems. It was down 12% 
today, 12% in one day. You know, I think there is a potential huge problem with these uh, social media sites, Google, Facebook, Twitter, you know, everybody whose business model is advertising, where the user pays nothing, right? If you want to use Facebook, if you want to use Twitter, costs nothing, right? It doesn't cost you anything to have a Twitter account, to have a Facebook account. It's all free. Well, if it's all free, how does Facebook make all this money? Well, they make all the money by selling the data that they collect from all of their users to advertisers or, uh, you know, political uh, campaigns or anybody who needs personal information uh, in order to market their product or sell their product. And that is the trade-off that everybody makes. You get the service for free, but you, you know, you, you know that they're using your information, right? I mean, that's just how it is. I mean, if you want to watch television, you can watch free television and you can watch the commercials. If you don't want any commercials and you have cable, well, you pay a subscription and there's no commercial. So it's the same thing, right? You get to use a social media site for free and the trade-off is, well, you know, they're going to uh, use your data uh, for advertising, for marketing. And everybody knows this, but all of a sudden it is a big deal. And I think the public, potentially there could be a backlash regarding just how much information the social media companies are actually retaining. And in fact, you know, one of the things I guess that was a problem for Twitter today is there was, they were talking about the fact that how Twitter uses the information that is contained in the private messages that you send, right? If, if you send out a private tweet to an, one individual where you assume, okay, well, nobody is seeing it because I'm just sending it to one person. Well, nobody else who has a Twitter account is seeing it. But Twitter is seeing it, right? And Twitter's, uh, you know, computers are analyzing it and they're looking for keywords or whatever it is so that they can sell that information to whoever wants to buy it. And now all of a sudden there's a bit of a backlash about, hey, wait a minute, you know, these companies are spying on us. This is Big Brother. Uh, you know, what are they doing with all this data? I mean, they're somehow using it against us. And, you know, first of all, I am, you know, I don't have a problem with companies like Facebook or Twitter or anybody, Google, um, using the information that they learn about me to uh, improve my ad experience by making sure that the ads that I see are for things that I'm more likely to have an interest in. And that's really what they're trying to do is target uh, their advertisements so that when somebody, an advertiser, comes to one of these companies and they want an ad, they can target their ad in a way that it's the most effective and just pay for the ads that have a better chance of working. And, you know, that's fine with me. I mean, you know, if I find out about a product or a service that I'm really interested in and I didn't even know about it and now I learn about it online and then I decide to subscribe to the service or buy the product, I mean, that's fine, right? Obviously, that improves my life. I made a conscious choice. I decided to buy a product that I think is going to improve my life. If I didn't think it was going to be beneficial, I wouldn't buy it. So I'm not worried about companies having information about what I like and what I don't like and then using that information to call my attention to products and services that I might enjoy, that I might want to buy. And, you know, I think most people uh, wouldn't have a problem with that. To me, the problem is what if the information falls 
into the wrong hands? What if the government gets the information? See, that, that's what bothers me when government has all kinds of information that they could use against me in bad ways, in ways where I don't have a choice in the matter, right? They could just force things. Or people might think, well, what if somebody that works at one of these companies that has access to this data, you know, does something with it or shares it with somebody or uses it in some way that's harmful, right? Showing me an ad isn't harmful, right? Because I don't have to buy the product that's being advertised. And again, I'd rather see an ad for something I'm interested in than something I couldn't care less about. But I think What's really going to be the issue here is going to be the politics of this, because I think the politicians are going to smell an opportunity here to ride to the rescue and to feign outrage and to have the hearings about these companies and and to investigate them and maybe potentially ban uh, what they're doing. And, you know, the biggest irony of that is the government doesn't give a damn about our privacy. I mean, when these politicians are going to talk about how Google or Facebook or Twitter are violating our privacy. I mean, they are the main violators of privacy, and that's where I care. I don't like the government knowing everything about what I do, but unfortunately they do. And you know, one of the things that I don't like about being in the financial services business is the fact that the government requires me to spy on all of my customers. So none of my customers have any privacy. And that's not, you know, just me. I mean, that is the situation everywhere. Anytime you open up a bank account, anytime you open up a brokerage account, nothing that you do is private. All of your transactions are scrutinized. I mean, what I have to do as a broker dealer is I have to look at all of our accounts and I have to spend a lot of money, cost me a lot of money to be a spy and to police all my clients. I don't get paid. The government doesn't pay me to do it. I'm forced to do it, right? I'm an unpaid you know, spy, FBI agent, IRS agent, right? So I'm looking at all of our customer transactions when they send us money, when they take money out, right? And if anything looks suspicious, right, we have to file a report with the regulators. It's called a a SAR, a suspicious activity report. And we got to rat out the customer. Now, we can't even tell the customer that we're ratting them out, right? We We have to keep it quiet. So if we think something is suspicious, we really can't even ask the customer for an explanation because maybe he has a good explanation. We're not supposed to let him know that we have the suspicion. We're just supposed to report them to the, to the regulators so they can investigate it. And the worst part about it is if I don't do this, then I can get fined, right? Because what happens is when the auditors come in and look at our, our records, they look for all this potential suspicious activity themselves. And if they find something that looks suspicious, some transactions that look suspicious, and we did not report that suspicious transaction, then I get in trouble, right? So, you know, there is no financial privacy. Nobody has any financial privacy. And then what about when you fill out your tax return, right? You tell the government all this personal information about yourself, right? What if you want to get medical deductions, right? Well, you got to tell the government about who your doctor is or, you know, how much you paid or what your treatment was. I mean, there's all sorts of things. You tell them, you know, what charities you made contributions to, if you want to get that deduction. I mean, they know how much you earn, obviously. They know a lot about your expenses. You have no privacy. The government knows so much about you. Where you're supposed to have privacy is from the government, because it's the government that potentially can use the information against you. When they talk about Orwell or 1984 or Big Brother, they're not talking about a private company 
knowing what I might like so it can sell me, you know, so it can advertise a product to me. It's the government having this information. That is the problem. And they may get it because obviously all the information that Facebook has, if the government wants it, they're going to get it, right? They're going to ask Facebook to turn it over and they're going to do that. In fact, you know, my father used to jokingly refer uh, to a tax return, the 1040 that we all signed as a confession, not a tax return, as a confession. Because you're not returning anything to the government. You're just confessing. You know, and, you know, the reason that they call a tax return a return, most people don't know this, so I'll I'll let everybody know. When they first started the income tax, and it first started in the Civil War, right? And then it went away when the war was over. But it it, it initially began as as a Civil War tax. And I've talked about that before. And, in fact, the reason that they taxed your worldwide income was to get the draft dodgers who had moved up to Canada to avoid the draft. They wanted to tax their income, uh, even though they were living in Canada. So that's why that, you know, we taxed all your income, even if you were an American living abroad, because a lot of Americans left because they didn't want to get drafted. So they wanted to make sure that even if they dodged the draft, they wouldn't dodge the income tax. But the reason it was called a tax return is because the government would actually send you a bill you didn't have to compute your taxes yourself. You didn't have to go to H&R Block. The government's assessor would fill out your tax return, right? They would fill out all the information. They would, you know, here's what you earned, right? Here's, you know, and they would, uh, they would, um, they would send it out to you um, with a computation. And you would return that information to, to the government along with your payment, right? So you are returning it, right? So the government already had the information and you were returning the information that the government already had back to the government. You were verifying that the information was correct. I mean, if it wasn't correct, maybe you had to change it. But today, the whole concept of a return is meaningless because the government doesn't have anything, right? You are giving them all that information. Although today, you know, they, they obviously, they get your W-2s or they get these 1099s. So some of that information they already have, but for a long time, they didn't even have that. You know, these are things that happened, you know, uh, in the 1990s or the 2000s or 1970s, 1980s. They didn't have any of that stuff. So literally everything that you told the IRS in your tax return was all brand new information that they didn't know until you confessed and gave it to them. And that's another reason that my dad would say it was a confession. But the other reason he called it a confession had to do with the Fifth Amendment. I talked about that on an earlier podcast. But I I mentioned that the Supreme Court has already ruled that any American who files a tax return is being a witness within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment because all the information that you give to the government on your tax return can be used against you in a criminal proceeding, which is why filing the return is voluntary. And what you're really doing is you're, you're, you're giving a confession to the government. Now, if they called your tax return a confession... Americans would know, wait a minute, you can't require me to confess, right? I, you can't force me to confess and then use my confession against me. I mean, clearly you can't do that. So by calling it a tax return, right, people think they're required to file the return. Well, okay, well, you know, they, they would not be dumb enough to think they were required to confess. Although who knows? By this point, Americans are dumb enough to believe they have to do anything the government says. But maybe, you know, decades ago, when Americans were a little bit more cognizant of their rights, if they were told that they had to get in their tax confession by April 15th, you know, some light bulbs would have gone off in people's heads and they would have said, hey, the government can't require me to confess. 
Uh, so they call it a return, and people think they're required to file the tax return, even though technically they're not required to file. It's voluntary because if it was mandatory, they couldn't use the tax return against you. But if they couldn't use the tax return against you, then nobody could be prosecuted for tax evasion. So they have to make it voluntary so that they can use the return against you, but they have to pretend it's mandatory. And in fact, if you don't file, they can actually put you in jail, which proves it's not mandatory. It's compulsory, which means the whole thing is illegal. But that's got me off into another subject. But the point that I wanted to talk about was the government doesn't give a damn about privacy, right? Yet they are probably going to have hearings and they're going to drag CEOs of these companies and they're going to try to you know, bombard them and act like they're there to protect us. But at the end of the day, there could end up being regulation on these companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter limiting their ability to utilize the information that they get from their users. Now, what is that going to mean? Well, that's going to mean that their earnings are going to collapse. And how are they going to replace that lost revenue? Well, they might have to start charging people to use their product. Right. Maybe if you want to have a Facebook account, maybe it'll be five bucks a month or a dollar a month or whatever. Now, how many people are willing to pay that? I mean, a lot of people won't pay anything to have a Facebook account. They only have it because it's free. Now, of course, Facebook has the ability if Congress doesn't get in the way, they could certainly say, look, we're using all your data. We're using all your information. If you don't want us to do that, if you don't want us to store any of your information, if you don't want us to sell any of your information, then you can have a premium service and it's going to cost you whatever, $2 a month or $5 a month. So let the people who want to make sure that Facebook doesn't store their data or use their data, then you pay for that premium service. And there will be some people that will be willing to do it. But most people will say, forget it. Right? They couldn't care less what Facebook does with their data, as long as they could use it for free, right? And so that might happen. And that would be the free market solution, right? To ha- you know, if you don't like the company selling your information to advertisers, then maybe you could limit. Okay, you can use certain information, but not other information. They can have various tiers of privacy that you can pay for. And of course, no one has to pay for anything because nobody has to have a Facebook account. Nobody has to have a Twitter account. So if you know, you could just not use any of these services and that would be the free market working, you know, and then if they take your data and do something with it, even though they were not authorized to do it, right? Well, then, you know, then there'd be a problem. Now, of course, I've actually heard people talking that maybe Facebook should pay the users to use their data. So instead of, you know, you paying them uh, not to use it, that they're required to pay you in order to use it. Like you're providing the content and they're just paying you for, for your content. Because, you know, that's really what's going on, right, on Facebook is, you know, you're every, all the users, right, are uploading their content, you know, their, their, their tweets or their photographs or their interests, you know, they're providing all that, which now people are utilizing uh, for their marketing campaigns or their political campaigns, whatever they're doing. But... To the extent that this is a requirement of law, that's going to be damaging to this entire industry. I mean, if the free market is allowed to work it out and whether you have to pay or they pay you, uh, that's fine with me. But if the government comes in and has rules and regulations that limit what companies are allowed to do with this data, whether whether, you're paying or not paying, whatever, that is going to diminish the value that these companies have 
as far as their ability to sell information to their customers, the, the companies that want to advertise. And these companies have sky-high valuations. I mean, these are pillars of the NASDAQ. These stocks dominate the market. They're in everybody's portfolio. And if the government takes action to diminish the value of what these companies have, then that is very negative for the market. And I don't think the politicians are going to be able to uh, walk away from this because it's exactly what they want, right? That's all politics is about, is pretending that you're there to protect us, right? The politicians always want to protect us from monsters and villains, even if they have to create the monsters themselves and then pretend to protect us. But this is perfect, right? You've got these big companies, these big bad companies that are misusing your personal data, your photographs, your your private messages. And now the government is going to come and save you, right? We're going to hold these companies accountable. We're going to make sure that they're not doing anything bad. Meanwhile, it's the government that's doing all this bad stuff. It's the government that's making your life miserable. I mean, these private companies are just trying to improve your life by hooking you up with advertisers that have something that you might want to buy, right? So there's nothing really bad going on there, and the private sector would work it all out. But they are going to jump on this bandwagon. The politicians will not be able to resist this. This is going to be like open season. Everyone's going to want to meet to this. All the politicians are going to get some sound bites. They're going to want their constituents to see them out there, right, protecting them. Like, like, you know, like every time you'll see like a cable company or the banks, you know, they, you know, the politician, this is outrageous. They're charging a $2 fee to use your ATM. And you figure, all right, well, gee, how much does that really add up to, right? I mean, is that really going to kill me? I mean, you know, and if I don't like that bank and what they charge to use an ATM, well, you know, I don't have to use the ATM. I can, I can, I can see a teller. I can go to the bank when it's open instead of at 2, 2 a.m. when there's nobody there. I mean, there's a lot of convenience that you get by using an ATM machine. And if the banks want to charge, fine. Then, you know, maybe some banks don't. Or maybe, you know, use the ATM machine of your own bank. Sometimes you want to use your bank card at an ATM that's not at the actual bank. You know, there's a fee. Somebody had to put that ATM there. But you get the politicians want to make a big deal about these fees and how they're a ripoff. Look, the government is taking 20% of what you earn, 30% of what you earn, 40% of what you earn. These are huge numbers. And then they want to save us a couple of bucks when we use the ATM machine or a few bucks off our cable bill. I mean, come on. I mean, why don't you just shrink government, right? Stop taxing me. And then we could all take care of our cable bills and our phone bills because that's all peanuts compared to what we're paying in income taxes compared to what we're paying in Social Security taxes and all these taxes. So we have this enormous government for what? So they can try to make sure that we don't have to pay a couple of bucks to use the ATM machine. This is going to be another example of governments making mountains out of molehills on what's going on with our personal data. The markets would solve all of this on their own. Uh, You know, the customers and the companies would compete. They'd figure it all out. But this is just another negative in this bear market. Because now the tech stocks, the social media stocks are getting killed. The banks still look ugly. I mean, the banks had nice rallies yesterday, but they gave most of it back or all of it back today. Banks uh, down. In fact, the only reason the Dow wasn't down even more is you got GE up 4% today, 4.2%. I think there were some rumors that Warren Buffett might be buying General Electric. I mean, this stock is a, is a dog. This stock has been falling. In fact, uh, it was about... 30, 35 bucks last year. Stocks at 13 and a half. I mean, it's almost all the way down to the low from 2009 following the financial crisis. 
So GE has been a horrible stock. Now, is Warren Buffett you know, making a big investment? Maybe, but you know, that's not necessarily good for GE because Warren Buffett may make a sweetheart deal where he gets a convertible preferred where they have to pay him a huge dividend that's actually going to drain the earnings of uh, a General Electric. He becomes a creditor because, you know, that's what he did with the banks. He bought into the banks right before the financial crisis of 2008, and he made these sweetheart deals. But, you know, Buffett wasn't so smart because the stocks that he bought, you know, collapsed after he bought them. It's just that because he got convertible preferreds, uh, you know, he didn't get killed. So that if you just copied Warren Buffett, when you saw Warren Buffett make these big bets on the financials before they collapsed, if you bought them too, you didn't get them on the same terms that Warren Buffett did, and you got killed. Now, had the Federal Reserve not come in with the bailouts and the TARP program, some of those companies that Warren invested in might have gone bankrupt. Now, was Warren Buffett smart in that he said, you know what, I know these companies are a mess, but the government's going to bail them out, so I'm not worried about them failing. Or was he actually wrong? Did he actually not see the problems coming and he didn't, you know, he wasn't betting on a bailout, right? Because maybe he thought he was buying near the lows and he didn't see the financial crisis coming, but at least he protected himself because he he didn't just buy straight equity. Uh, But I think that anybody who's jumping into GE right now because, oh, whoa, Warren Buffett might be buying it. They better remember that, A, if Warren is buying it, He's probably not buying a common stock like you're buying. He's probably buying a convertible preferred, and he's higher up on the on the credit structure than you are, and he gets a higher dividend. And the last time he made some big bets on some companies, uh, you know, they ended up collapsing after he bought them. So it wasn't uh, a good trade. So me, to me, the fact that Warren might be making a big bet in GE, to me, it might mean that GE needs the capital, and they had to go to Warren Buffett because he's got all the money. This could be another bad sign just like his big investments were a bad sign before the 2008 financial crisis. So you got more and more evidence of this bear market, yet still nobody seems to believe that we're in a bear market. We're still in a bull market. We're still in a correction as far as everybody else is concerned. But to me, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And this market is looking like, walking like, and quacking like a bear market. Yeah, we're not down 20% yet, but plenty of stocks are. Hey, Facebook's down more than 20%. It's in a bear market, right? So you got a lot of stocks that are already in bear markets. The fact that technically the entire market is not there, you know, that's just a matter of time, right? That's that's the technicality that isn't even going to be relevant once we get there. The question is, how big a bear market is the Fed going to allow, right, before it tries to reverse the course? And it's going to take more than just a tweet uh, from Donald Trump. The Fed's going to have to actually do something to change this game. They're going to have to take away these rate hikes. They may even have to, you know, launch QE4. I don't know if just, you know, not raising rates is going to be enough because once this market is going down, it's going to have uh, have a life of its own. Now, meanwhile, the, the gold market breakout still hasn't happened. We got above yesterday. Gold was up, I don't know, five, six, seven bucks. We got to, I think, 1355, 13.66. Not enough above 13.50 to really be a breakout because we've been above 13.50 before and nothing happened. And so it's not simply, oh, we just get above 13.50 and it's off to the moon. We're going to have to put some distance between 13.50 and where the price of gold is. That's why I've been throwing out 1400. I don't think it has to go all the way to 1400, but somewhere between 13.50 and 1400 is the breakout point. Can't really tell exactly where it is, but 
it didn't break out. And obviously, that big 700-point Dow rally yesterday uh, was probably working against the gold breakout. And then this morning, when the Dow started up a couple hundred points, gold gapped down. It was down like 10 bucks right out of the gate, and it was down like $13, $14, $15, I think, at one point. Now, when the market turned around, gold recovered some of its losses. It only closed down about, I don't know, eight and a half bucks or so, nine bucks. I, I thought it would have recovered more of its losses, but it didn't. But, you know, 1344-ish is where we closed. So now we're back below the 1350, but we're still making progress. The chart still looks good. It still looks like we're progressing closer and closer to a breakout. Remember, I said if we didn't break out on Monday, we're going to break out eventually. And it's not, you know, years and years away. I, it's probably not even months away. It's days or weeks away. we got to be getting closer and closer. In fact, if you look at where the dollar was yesterday against the euro, the dollar was about to break down from a 10-year uptrend, meaning the euro was about to break out of a 10-year downtrend. We are very, very close. Now, the euro was down a little bit today, so we're right on that line. But if you look at this trend, it started in 2008. Just before the financial crisis is when the euro peaked. And if you connect the, the top of that line from where the euro was, and you connect every major high from 2008 until now, we are right on the bottom of that line. We are very close, you know, maybe 126 or so. It's hard to say exactly where the euro needs to get to break through that line, but we are right there. And I think if we break above a 10-year downtrend in the euro, right, and we're going to get a strong euro, that is a very, very bearish sign for the U.S. dollar. It's very bullish for emerging markets, bullish for commodities. That's why oil prices keep rising. You know, we were down today, back below 65, but this morning we were back above 66. In fact, I think uh, Sunday night we got to almost 66 and a half. I mean, the bids have been coming in in the oil market. By the way, they're now trading uh, the petrol yuan, or they're trading oil now in yuan in China, and this is a big deal. There's a lot of volume now coming into this contract, and this also involves... Uh, gold as well as oil, but trading oil to settle in yuan. This is challenging the dollar's preeminence. Remember, one of the reasons that so many people want dollars is because they use dollars to buy oil, even the oil that's produced outside the United States. Well, to the extent that China is now going to be trading oil in yuan, of course, China is now the biggest user of oil, and so they'd like to pay in yuan. I mean, why do they want to deal in U.S. dollars? So this is another thing that is happening along with the explosion and the, the deficits and the budget deficits and the trade deficits. I mean, all these alarms, all these bells are going off at the same time. The problem is most people out there don't even know what to look for. They don't know there's a problem. I mean, I said, you know, when I was, uh, you know, doing the short on subprime and I had, we had, you know, that trade on and we had clients in that fund. When stuff started to happen, in early 2007, a lot of stuff was like all of a sudden, aha, you know, the, some of these subprime um, companies were going bankrupt, some of the smaller ones. And it was like, aha, you know, this is the beginning of it. People weren't worried. But to me, it was like, aha, you know, I've been waiting for this. And then even after the subprime blew up, which was part of something that I thought was going to start the whole financial crisis, when it happened, the mainstream was very dismissive. Oh, don't worry about it. It's contained. There's nothing to worry about. See, I knew that as soon as this happened, aha, this is a big deal because I'd been waiting for it. I knew that this was the tip of a huge iceberg and a lot more was going to happen. So when these initial you know, warning signs were flashing, 
it meant something to me because I had been expecting it. I understood what the problem was. But the people who were completely oblivious to the problems, when they, they saw these flashing warnings, they didn't realize that there was a warning. They didn't see anything as a, as a problem because they weren't looking out for it. So right now, there are so many things that are happening that I've been expecting to happen, that I've been you know, anticipating for a number of years. And now all these things that were part of my forecast are flashing red, right? You know, I can see it all. And so everything is close. Yet the same people who were oblivious to the financial crisis in 2008, who ignored all the warning signs that were flashing in 2007 and early 2008, you know, when I was going on television, when they still let me on television, and I was talking so confidently about how bad this problem was and how quickly it was going to manifest itself, it was because of all these warning signs. I had been, you know, warning about these problems for years before I started sounding the alarm that violently uh, when it was that close to the actual event because so much had already happened that I had been forecasting. To me, I was like, you know, we got to be close. And I feel the same way again now that all this stuff is happening. All these warnings are out there, but people don't know their warnings because they don't know to look for them because they don't know that anything is wrong. If you think everything is perfect and there's nothing that can go wrong, then you're not, you know, your guard isn't up. You're not looking for these warning signs. In fact, to the extent that you see one, you're going to dismiss it. You're going to rationalize it away. And that's exactly what's happening now. That's exactly what happened uh, in 2008. So again, I don't know how much more time we have before this whole thing blows up, before the stock market cracks, before gold takes off, before the dollar tanks. All this stuff is going to happen. The only wild card, again, is when is the Fed going to come in and how big are they going to come in you know, and how much damage is going to be done to the markets before they come in and how much damage to the economy. But either way, the, the results are going to be the same. Obviously, you know, the more money they print, the more QE they do, the more value the dollar is going to lose, right? the higher the price of gold is going to go. But I think the direction is going to be the same, regardless of when the Fed acts or how the Fed acts. The direction of the move is going to be the same. The only difference is going to be the magnitude. But the most important part is to make sure that you're on the right side of this move because almost every investor is going to be on the wrong side.